Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. On today's show, I'd like to talk to you about potentially your home being stolen by criminals based upon public real estate data, and also uh, things associated with avoiding real estate scams in general and LinkedIn phishing scams, and then some other scams, which are called dark patterns. So basically, if you own real estate or you care about not being scammed, this is a show for you. So let's first start off on something pretty staunchly important, which is making sure that you're doing as much as you possibly can in order to make it difficult for the criminals to steal the deed to your property. And uh, this is a pretty tense, you know, it's a pretty tense topic because it's so lucrative, right? And um, there's there are some real privacy challenges with regards to real estate records. I mean, inherently, real estate records are supposed to be, you know, public records f- so that everybody can look up. Oh, okay. Well, who owns that property? Okay. Well, it's supposed to be a you know a definitive governmental registry that is, you know, like a clearinghouse of ownership. So there's clearly valid reasons for it being that way. And the difficulty though is that that deed data, if the criminals are able to figure out a way whereby they can that you know they can pretend to be you and they can then file a new deed or a fake sale of a property to you know the county where your property is at then they can do deed tra- deed transfer and basically make themselves owners of your property and so the question is you know are you monitoring that on a regular basis how are you monitoring that uh, i would even take uh, take it a step further and say what are you doing in order to eliminate the exposure of that data overall like how difficult are you making it for the bad guys to be able to figure out who owns the property that you own and if they do figure out that it's you then how difficult are you making it for them to open accounts in your name and basically overall pretend to be you and this is a very very complex problem and it's it's very difficult to execute. I mean, it's just it's exceptionally difficult to execute, and it requires a very very multi pronged approach. So <clears throat> I'm gonna try and go through some of it here. Where one of the big pieces of advice I would give anybody is never to buy a piece of property in their own name, and this is somewhat problematic and challenging because almost all of the mortgages in the United States now are backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have as part of their requirements that the loans have to be tied to an individual. They cannot be tied to an entity, a legal entity. And so as part of that, then, if you're going to use a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac backed loan as part of that uh, property purchase, then they eliminate, you know, they're intentionally eliminating your ability 
to buy that property in the name of an LLC or a trust or anything else that you may have. And actually, uh, trusts are really, um, they're really on, on a bad, they're in a bad way now. And the reason that they're in a bad way now is because of the changes to IRS regulations about the amount of income that a trust can make before that uh, that trust income is hitting a very, very high taxation rate. I mean, I think it was, now don't quote me on this, but I think it was reduced to something under $30,000 a year, which I mean, if, if you imagine that, let's say a trust has a rental property as part of it, I mean, it's, it's quite easy to imagine where you'd be getting to $30,000 a year in income in rental income with just a single property. I mean, that's, that's easy to imagine that context. And what if you had two properties, you know? Um, so trusts are really on the, the, you know, they're going by the wayside and actually, you know, trusts don't really provide asset protection. They can help with estate planning but they don't really provide that kind of asset protection. Uh, trusts are better at privacy. And I think that privacy topic is a bit challenging now too, because of again, federal changes to regulations where there's now going to be the beneficial owner registry data that is going to, you know, it's going to become the new hacker honeypot that because of the way the federal government is doing things, they're saying that uh, every small business that's out there, every business in general that's out there, and that includes trusts because trusts are legal entities, are going to have to, I'm thinking it's annually, it may be every once every two years, but it might be annually, fill out some documentation with the federal government, most likely online, and it's asking for a full disclosure and full registration with a federal registry of beneficial owners of any legal entity. The, uh, yeah, this is still somewhat kind of up in the air, but it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be happening, although Congress still has the ability to intervene to a certain degree. The intent behind it is, you know, anti-money laundering statutes and so forth, but ultimately I think the biggest issue with it is that it's defeating asset protection, it's diminishing privacy, diminishing the ability for an individual to keep a lower profile and not be targeted as easily by criminals. And it's ultimately drastically increasing the cost of compliance, not just with the federal government items, but also just how much money are you having to spend doing your best to try to protect yourself from having your identity stolen, your um, you know, unwinding issues like bank accounts have been opened in your name, credit accounts been opened in your name, somebody goes and gets a mortgage on a property in your name, um, you know, or and it, anyways, it's just, it, I'm not in favor of that particular legislation because I feel like the federal government already had full visibility into virtually every transaction, every financial transaction that's out there. So uh, if they actually wanted to know the dark money, uh, they could know the dark money 
And doing dark money transactions and money laundering is actually quite difficult, and it's way above the pay grade of you know, the vast majority of small to medium businesses. So therefore, small to medium businesses are getting targeted for really no efficacy whatsoever. So the challenge we have here is that, you know, let's say you have real estate and you're trying to make sure, make sure that you continue to own that real estate. So rule number one is do your best to never, ever, ever own that real estate in your name. Now, under the context that you've had to go buy real estate in your name because of that whole mortgage issue that I talked about, well, what else can you do? Well, first off, try your best to pay off the mortgage, and then as soon as it's paid off, then you can transfer the ownership of the property into an LLC that is dedicated for that purpose. This also turns into, uh, you know, you, you needing to, I mean, you can either wait till the, the mortgage is cleared, or I know of certain lenders who, as long as you demonstrate to them that the ownership of the LLC is identical to the underlying foundational individualized ownership, they see no alteration in ownership by simply doing a quick claim deed transfer. But you do really want to clear that with them first, because if you look at most mortgage loan documentation, they'll say that in the context that there is a deed transfer, then that can cause the entire loan amount to be payable and due immediately. Right, so you really do want to reach out to them first and it all should be done in writing because if it isn't done in writing and it's not signed off by the proper people at that lender, then I really wouldn't, I wouldn't count on it being enforceable. And even before you, you do make that final transition, then I would still advise you to have a lawyer take a look at it and have another second set of eyes. Uh, I mean, unless you're actually in a position where you're comfortable just saying, well, you know what, if they call that entire remaining loan amount due, then yep, I can pay that and I'm comfortable paying that. I mean, if, if that's the case, then I almost wonder why not just pay off the property. So that's, that's that whole component of the the ownership with regards to the, the mortgage. Okay, so now what else can we do? One of the other problems you have to worry about when you're dealing with lenders is that trying to get them to comply with sending your mail to another location is exceptionally difficult. And they are not good at managing their databases. And frankly, a lot of financial institutions are not good at managing their databases. So you may say, well, you know, I, I'm going to have more security here because I'm going to go get a P.O. box and then I'm going to tell them to send all mailings there. And I think that that's a very good approach because in that approach, what you're doing is uh, you're really reducing the probability of a snail mail delivery going to someone who might be able to get a hold of a document that they should have never gotten a hold of. So if you happen to have rental properties, this is a major problem. It's really a major problem. I've seen endless quantities of horse hockey associated with either uh, scammers 
or people who are trying to trick you into refinancing your mortgage with them, they don't have any, you know, they don't have a relationship with you. But when that property is listed under your name, then what they do is they're mailing that address. So they're mailing, they're doing physical mailings of stuff intended for you to that address. And really, your renter is getting all that stuff. So the P.O. boxes make a lot of sense because it can help you to separate the valid mail from garbage mail. And I've also seen circumstances where you can tell the lender to don't solicit you. You're opting out of all of their communications that are marketing related, etc. And then you also simultaneously sign up for what's called electronic communications only. So you're basically telling them, don't send me any paper. Don't send me anything in snail mail that somebody could pick out of a mailbox that either they could send to the wrong place, it could be misdelivered, it could be picked up out of a mailbox somehow and used by somebody who had no business knowing what any of the contents of that was whatsoever. Well, I can tell you that that is a difficult thing to do and it's going to take a per persistent amount of effort to get that done. Uh, one beneficial approach to that is just don't have a deliverable mailbox there whatsoever. So like if you literally have no mailbox at that address, then the USPS is unable to deliver there. And then those stupid mailings will just get, they'll just get undeliver bounce back. And you know, your postal person gets to know that, well, they don't have a mailbox, so we can't deliver anywhere. So they don't even put it in their mailbag to deliver. They just chuck it. You know, if it's not first class mail with the return to sender turned on, then they just chuck it, right? And then, you know, the it never gets misdelivered to your neighbors or the neighbors of your renter. It never gets misdelivered to your renter. You know, it just doesn't get misdelivered uh, overall. And um, so these are things to think about. A P.O. box is actually, especially a small P.O. box is just ridiculously inexpensive and it's very beneficial, you know, in many ways. It's also way more secure, right? I mean, you've got to actually go with a key to get into that P.O. box. And some of the post offices do a fantastic job where uh, they actually have 24-hour access. I've been very, very impressed by some of the PO, the post offices that, uh, that, that this country has where some of them are open 24 hours a day. Uh, and I, I don't mean like the service counter is open, but I mean that your ability as a P.O. box holder to get in to retrieve your, your physical mail at least the mail that could be placed inside your mail slot is accessible to you 24 hours a day. Obviously, if you get a big package or something like that, then you have to come back when the service counter is open. So now data that has been posted to public records is extremely valuable. It's extremely profitable. There is a massively profitable industry that is engaging in data harvesting and those companies do not have the best security and they're just really in the process or in the business of what's called data sharing. You know, so their intent is to 
collect data by any means possible uh, that they think is legal, whether or not it's moral or ethical is a whole nother discussion. But if they think they can get away with it legally, then they do. And there's way too much stuff that is covered under the veil of transitive trust agreements and legal contracts for which you know, when the rubber meets the road, it's really a direct violation of consumer privacy law. And the problem we have in the United States right now is that consumer privacy law is not strong enough. And hopefully that will get addressed at some point in time. Um, I think Illinois has, has done a good job on the biometric privacy stuff. There needs to be more of that that happens throughout the United States. And uh, it was a pretty big deal for me to actually give Illinois a positive on anything because they generally are uh, not good at executing things at the governmental level. So what can you do to reduce this information that's out there about you? Well, I strongly recommend you just sign up for Abine's service called Delete Me. They've, they're very affordable. They've done a great job over the years. They continually are managing their their list. I can't even begin to imagine trying to do what they do on a manual basis. It is absolutely possible for you to interact with the data brokers you know, individually for supposedly free and to get them to unsubscribe you. But if you value your time at all, you would just go out there to uh, abine.com and sign up for the delete me subscription. They have family packages. And, and no, I'm not making any money by telling you this. It's just I've vetted that service and I think they do an excellent job. And it's very effective at reducing the publicly available profile of things. Uh, another thing I would recommend is to, if you're going to make campaign donations to, you know, to politicians and so forth, it's best to make those donations either in cash or make them uh, to you know a, a, a group a group that is effectively donating on your behalf or anonymizing that somehow because the political campaigns that are being run ethically and not all of them are uh, they have to track where these donations come from and then they are forced to report those things. And I recommend trying to keep a low profile on that particular topic for a few reasons. One is just because it then becomes mandatorily you know, public record. And then people can utilize that against you just simply because they disagree with your viewpoints. And uh, you don't even have to have publicly stated anything about your viewpoints. It could just be that you support a candidate for some reason and they disagree with that candidate. And so then they project upon you all of their emotional baggage uh, that is probably not logical about why you may have contributed to that campaign. So it's best if you just don't do so on an individual basis. You know, there may be, there, there are ways that you can donate to campaigns legally and without causing a privacy disclosure issue and risk to yourself. Uh, the 
there are some major counterparty risks associated with uh, donating to places also that you're not 100% sure that they're going to be able to secure that data. I mean, we've got, uh, there's a there's few examples I could come up with that are just probably in the last six months that hit the news. One was that uh, there, were, there were some individuals who had uh, donated like $25, $20, $50 to the defense campaign for Kyle Rittenhouse. Okay. We're talking about microscopic amounts of money here. And it was their money. They weren't doing it on behalf of any organization. They weren't in violation of any law. They weren't in violation of any sort of employer policy. And that data was hacked and it was made public and retaliation occurred against those individuals for making microscopic donations. The same thing just recently happened up in Canada where individuals had their entire bank accounts frozen simply because they had donated $50 or $25 to a GoFundMe. That's it, that's all they did. And then uh, other companies had you know, gotten hacked where people had donated funds to for a cause. And then that list of who donated for that cause was made public by uh, criminals and miscreants in general. And then other people access that data and utilize that to target these people for personal destruction. So we are unfortunately at a place in this world right now where if you can't donate to your causes or efforts of choice uh, in, a, in a secure way, I, I mean, you really got to question, is it worth the $50 donation? You know, is it worth the $25 donation that I'm going to lose my job? Uh, I'm going to have my life personally destroyed. And, you know, and really, I mean, this is a form of oppression. It's a form of tyranny uh, that is sub, you know, it, it's suppressing an individual's free speech patterns because if it's their money, they should be able to donate to the causes of their choice and to be free from retaliation to do so. It's no different than you should have privacy over whether or not you checked the box on your tax return that you wished to donate to the presidential election fund. It's the same thing. That shouldn't be public record, nor should the holders of that data take so little care that that data gets compromised so that it can be utilized as a retaliation mechanism against you. So the stakes are pretty darned high. Um, the new movers mailing list is a big problem too. That one really, really concerns me. There's an enormous amount of uh, scams and garbage that comes from those types of things. I'm very much against, unfortunately, I wish it wasn't this way, but I'm very much against uh, doing any sort of like forwarding at the post office for your old address. And if you're gonna move, this is one of those areas where, boy, it sure would have been a great idea if you'd been using a PO box for years and years and years. Because if you were using a PO box for years and years and years, 
and then you move, well, guess who still has access to that P.O. box? That's right, you do. And your mail was not going to the old address where apparently the people who own your house now, you know, your old house, they're now getting your mail. You know, and what comes of that? Is that the type of thing that, that you're comfortable with? The new movers mailing list is uh, problematic also because the whenever it appears via public records or via credit reports and things like that, uh, that you have moved to a new address, that data is harvested and sold by data brokers and credit reporting agencies I mean, they're, they're making tons of money off of it. This is literally a data list that they sell. And it is sold to anyone who has the money to buy it. So criminals can buy it. Local businesses can buy it. Other data brokers can buy it. And these are, you know, these lists are utilized uh, even by real estate agents, for example, to reach out to who they think are their new pr- prospective buyers. Um, uh, or you know new sellers it, i've seen you know other legitimate local businesses say hey you know do you need new windows and blinds or whatever okay so you have to realize that if you get yourself onto one of those new movers mailing lists there there are some challenges with that there are a lot of scams that come from that i mean i've personally seen them where that data gets harvested and then you start getting pretty convincing looking mailings that uh, could very easily mislead someone who's not uh, deeply astute and that that misdirection and that misrepresentation in some of these mailings uh, would indicate to someone who wasn't otherwise using some of the techniques I've uh, described here, it would lead them to believe that there's actually a problem with their mortgage and that they have to call this company. And if they don't call this company, they're going to get foreclosed on. And the next thing you know, you're, you're in phone calls with a scam company. And this is similar to for you know, the last 20 plus years, there's been domain registrars. And that I don't know exactly when it was, but it's been around for a very, very long time, what's called privacy information for the domain registrations. Well, the companies and the organization, you know, the individuals who chose to not utilize that privacy registration stuff for their domains. Well, again, this was worldwide publicly available information. Well, next thing you know, you're going to start getting a ton of emails that are scams and you get physical snail mailings that are scams, and they're very driven based upon misdirection and misrepresentation. So it's like, oh, your domain is going to expire. Call us now, you know, or fill this form out. And all that they end up doing is they utilize that scamification to actually steal your assets. So let me describe a little bit here about what deed fraud is. And deed fraud is when criminals use your personal information that's found online, which is you know why you want to reduce the presence of your personal information online. 
And criminals then are impersonating homeowners to transfer the title of their home to the criminal. And this does happen to abandoned and vacation homes. Uh, they're the prime targets. But uh, criminals also go, over, go after occupied homes. And, you know, if you're, if you're a homeowner, you may not realize what's happened until you either go to sell the home and you find out that there's another lien on there or you're no longer the deed holder. Uh, or <laughs> let's say you receive a notice of eviction because what if the criminals go and get a mortgage on that property and then they default on that mortgage? Well, then the lender goes and is, you know, evicting, basically is going to evict you, whoever is there on the property, um, so that they can take possession of the property. So once the criminals obtained the title to your home, they can live there. They can rent or sell that property. They can apply for a home equity line of credit or refinance a mortgage against, you know, using that, that property. And in a foreclosure rescue scam, the scam starts with criminals identifying homeowners that have fallen behind on their mortgage payments through the internet or public foreclosure notices and newspapers, right? So here's another good reason not to, not to have that mortgage. So the criminal then contacts the homeowner claiming that they're a rescuer, assuring them that they can help them save their home. And in the end, they usually make a bunch of profit from fees or direct mortgage payments while the victim ends up losing their home to foreclosure. So hopefully uh, you find that data helpful and uh, have a lovely weekend.